Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, happy first, uh, first Sunday of Advent. Um, I am excited about this season as we continue to walk through uh, the Gospel of Luke as we're in this, this uh, section on, uh, on Jesus' birth and his coming. Uh, we, we talked today uh, as our, our, our readings uh, and, and the, the candle represents a hope. We're talking about hope today. Uh, hope is a, is a fundamental need of humanity. All humans need hope. Uh, I, I see this on the smallest of scales, uh, even in, uh, in my children. I have, I have uh, five children, 10 and under, so young, uh, young family. And if I tell them to get in the car, but I don't say where we're going, uh, they will ask and ask and ask and ask, right? Very curious. Uh, and if I still refuse to tell them, you know, oh, it's a surprise, I'm not going to tell you, then you better believe that after about 10 minutes, there will be restlessness, there will be people needing to go to the bathroom. Uh, at 20 minutes, there will be crying. And at 30 minutes, we will be in full meltdown mode, right? But uh, just this week, we drove the four and a half hours to my in-law's house in Dallas, uh, the Dallas area for our Thanksgiving, uh, for our Thanksgiving celebration. And, and they didn't give us any trouble. The kids did great. Why? Because of hope. Right? Hope. They, they, they were able to hang in there because they know what's at their grandparents' house. <laughs> right? They know their cousins are going to be there. And so they're looking forward to that. And if that's true on a micro level, and I think it is, um, it's also true on the macro level. Right? We, we need hope. Uh, the, our, the experience, the quality of our lives is largely based on what we hope for, what we put our hope in. Despite the fact that we live in, in one of the most prosperous and powerful countries in the world, uh, I, I think we see a widespread loss of hope and loss of hope in our society. Um, economically, uh, I saw a study that said 56% of 15 to 24-year-olds in the U.S. think they will be worse off than their parents at the same age. And that's not, uh, I don't think that's attributable just to youthful ignorance or something. Uh, I think many, we see many more young people do live at home than their parents uh, at the same age and also have much more student debt. Uh, Generation Z, uh, the, the teenagers, I was born between 95 and 2010, they're growing up in record rates of, uh, we're seeing record rates of stress, anxiety, depression, um, suicide uh, rates across the board of all age groups have, have grown in the U.S., uh, 30% between 2000 and 2016. Uh, more than, than one out of every 10 Americans are uh, over 12 years old, uh, take antidepressants. We, we, know, uh, we, we don't know what, what effect COVID uh, will, will have on, our, you know, will have on our, our society and will continue to have on how we see our future. Uh, but I think it's safe to say uh, that, that COVID and, and the politics and racial tensions, global instability, all of this has uh, stolen a lot of people's hope for the future, hasn't it? I think we're, we need hope in this moment. Israel, uh, in this time, needed hope. This was a time of darkness, a time of enemy oppression. The Romans controlled Israel. They were uh, subjects of the Roman Empire. Um, Israel's history had been a roller coaster in a lot of ways. 
right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being shepherds, and Joseph reigning in Egypt, right? Uh, then, then what happened? Uh, the whole na- they became a great nation, but the whole nation went into slavery. Uh, went, then what? They man came out with Moses. Moses delivered them. Then they went into desert wandering back down. Uh, they entered the promised land, and then had the time of the judges, right? The monarchy, David and King Solomon, and then the divided kingdom and uh, conquering by Assyria and Babylon and sent into exile. Um, and, and up to this point, they're, they're still occupied uh, by the Romans. But all throughout the ups and downs, all this roller coaster, uh, Israel, or at least a remnant within Israel, kept hoping in the Lord. They kept hoping in his promise, waiting for him to fulfill his word. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were part of this faithful remnant, John's parents. Now, uh, they were different than us uh, and similar to us in, I think, some important ways. Um, they were different in, in uh, that they were more historically minded, I think. Uh, as, as modern Western individuals, right, we often lack historical perspective. Uh, we struggle to see ourselves in continuity with our history that has undoubtedly made us who we are. In contrast, Zechariah, you can tell, just has this historical imagination, this historical memory uh, that has been trained by the scriptures. He mentions David, who was a thousand years before him. He mentions Abraham, who was 2,000 years before him. Uh, he mentions the prophets, his ancestors. This, his, his, his prophecy, his song is filled with references to the Old Testament. He's aware of the past and his continuity with it in a way that, that I think we sometimes struggle to be. But in another interesting way, they were also similar to us. And I want to try to help us enter in a little bit. There, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. I think sometimes we think of all Bible times as the same. Um, you know, so it's like, uh, we think, in general, it's like, well, in the, back in the Bible times, God like intervened in history and there were miracles and all this crazy stuff was happening. But now in our time, it's sort of boring. You know, God doesn't do that stuff anymore. Um, but, but man, this is not how it was. Zechariah wasn't seeing Elijah fight the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You know, he wasn't seeing Moses part the Red Sea. He didn't watch Jonah emerge from the fish. No, that was all ancient history to him. Right? Zechariah was born into a priestly family. He became a priest. He, reading and teaching the Old Testament, all these stories of God intervening in history, right? similar to what we know, right? We, we know these stories. But all the while experiencing the everyday of, of the world power at the time of Rome. He farmed his field. He raised his chickens, he paid his taxes. He went to the market. He experienced being a part of a, being a marginalized people surrounded by the pomp and the propaganda of this world empire. So there's a lot of everyday life uh, that Zechariah lived. And, but this child, right, is a miracle. This child is born and, and is a wonder. Elizabeth and Zachariah, as you'll remember, are old. They're beyond uh, childbearing years. And they name him something surprising, John, right? They name him what the angel told them his name would be. Uh, all of their friends thought it'd be Zach Jr., you know? Finally, Zachariah's having a kid. It'll be Zach Jr. Uh, but Zachariah confirms, no, no, his name's John. And his tongue is loosened. 
the word of the Lord comes true, that he would be mute until the promise is fulfilled. And he is, and the promise is fulfilled. He believes God, he trusts God's word, and he can speak again. Um, and the word of this amazing birth starts to spread around the area. And in verse 66, I think Luke is inviting us into the story. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. All who heard about this took it to heart. We've been hearing the last couple of weeks about John and Jesus and their miraculous conceptions. And I wonder if we've taken it to heart. I wonder if this is our experience. The angel, an angel appeared. Gabriel appeared to a virgin and to an old woman and promised two boys. And they both were born. The Lord's hand is up to something. What then will this child become? This is a hopeful question. This is a hopeful question, right? Children, what are the children? Their potential. They mean potential, right? There's, there's infinite potential before every child. But this child especially, God's, God's doing something. God is working. What's God doing here? And can I suggest that this is not just a hopeful question for those in the first century, but for you and I this morning as well. Because the hope that we all need is tied up with what the Lord was doing here 2,000 years ago. What the Lord was doing then, what these two children will become um, is, is, is integral to what the Lord is doing now, what you will become, what we all will become. What then will this child become? Um, Zechariah is going to answer that question in, in his prophecy, in the song that he, he speaks inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray once more, and then we'll look at that song together. Father, we, uh, we praise you, um, just like we sang, that we have lived in your goodness. You are so good to us. You are so kind, and we do not deserve it. Um, Lord, you're kind to give us your word. And so I pray and I ask that you would speak uh, to us, to our hearts, each of our hearts this morning. And you know my weakness, my inadequacy. I mean, you know how I can't even change my own heart, much less anyone else's. And so Holy Spirit, we rely on you and we need you. Please come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What then will this child become? Uh, number one, Zechariah in this, in this prophecy says, God is keeping his promises. God is keeping his promises. Um, Zechariah, he says, God's working, right? God's working, I see it. Verse 68, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and promised redemption and provided redemption for his people. He's visited, he's provided redemption for his people. He's come, right? This is what God is doing. He's coming personally, he's involved. He's not some uh, faraway deity who just creates everything and sets it in motion and then doesn't care. Uh, he's not someone who, who has better things to worry about, right? No, no, he's, he's involved. He visits his people. Um, and, and when he visits, he provides redemption. He provides redemption. This is Exodus imagery. Redeeming his people from slavery, right? From the, he's buying his people back. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't free ourselves. Um, and so he, we, it has to be provided for us. And that's what God does. He provides redemption. Verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Right, the, the promise was uh, a ruler in the line of David. 
right? A horn of salvation, of strength, of power uh, to, to save. And this, this ruler, um, this Messiah would bring salvation from uh, their enemies, from Israel's enemies. And you can hear this in the famous uh, Isaiah 9 passage, right? He says, just 70, just as you spoke by the mouth of, your, of his holy prophets. So this is one of the prophets who, who guaranteed and, and promised this Davidic ruler. Look at uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And he spoke by the, the prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. Uh, he, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors. Verse 72, remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. He's dealt mercifully with our ancestors, remembered his holy covenant to Abraham. Again, his his historical memory, right? He's recalling these things from the Old Testament. What what covenant was that? What covenant is he talking about? Well, when God tells Abraham to go up on the mountain to sacrifice his son, right? He says, go on the mountain, sacrifice your son to me. Uh, He takes Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac up up on the mountain. He binds him. He puts him on the altar. He's about to to, uh, kill his son. and, And God's stops him, right? It stops him in the moment and, and what provides a sacrifice, provides a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket to be the sacrifice instead of Isaac. And here's what God says to him. Because you've done this thing and I've not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make you, your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. God is visiting, providing redemption, salvation, mercifully rescuing, providing a place in his presence for his people to worship and serve him in holiness and righteousness. Zechariah is looking back at all the promises he's heard his whole life. Right, the things that he's read in the temple many times. Uh, he's looking at the Bible and the, all these promises and going, oh my, they're all true. It's happening. God is keeping his promises. Bless the Lord, right? Bless the Lord, he's saying. And brothers and sisters, we can have hope today because God is still keeping his promises. Right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's working. He's working now. The second thing I want to point out from, from this prophecy from Zechariah is that salvation is imminent. Salvation is imminent. Um, salvation is a theme of Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, and it's, it's a theme of this, of this song of Zechariah's prophecy. Um, salvation was a very physical thing for the Israelites, Right, they were a nation, an ethnic group, a people with a distinct language and culture and history and homeland. And so the promises throughout the Old Testament ring with, with these physical references, right? Like, like what we just read, your offspring will, uh, will possess the city gates of their enemies. 
So when I read that, I go, man, how, do, how does... How are we to understand? How's the church? Like, how are we supposed to understand these promises? Uh, and I think this can get into the weeds quickly, depending on how you view Israel and the church and, and whether and how these promises apply um, to, to the people of God now. But I think we can see here a little bit of how to helpfully re- resolve this and think about this. Um, Zechariah, like proud papa, right, turns to his boy in verse 76. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Through the forgiveness of their sins. Earlier in this, in this song, it's, it, he, he talks about salvation as, being a, as, as the Old Testament did, a physical thing, right? Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. Um, but here, then he, he says, to give people knowledge of their salvation, of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, so the same salvation that is rescue from enemies is through the forgiveness of their sins. And we see this throughout Israel's history, right? Israel's exile, Israel, when, when a country would come in and would take over and God would give his people to a warring nation. Why was that? It was always because of their sin. It was because of their unfaithfulness to him. And the way back was always understood, right? To turn to God, to repent, to turn back to him. But how should we understand this as God's people today? Well, I think we can put this together through how the Bible talks about sin. Um, sin is both uh, an act of rebellion, right, as in a disobedience, right, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, sin is a power that enslaves us, right, as in the, the Romans 6, the body ruled by sin, this power that enslaves us that, that Paul talks about. So to be saved, salvation, uh, right, we need both the forgiveness of sin, the forgiveness of sins we've committed, and deliverance from the power of sin over us. Salvation encompass bo- encompasses both of these things. And I think this clarifies for me how to make sense of some of the Old Testament prophes- promises to the people of God. As God's people now, we are not a nation state. We're not uh, an a ethnic group, a country. But we are, we are what? A, a church spread across every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. So we, we won't take uh, physical possession of the, the Philistines' gates like David did. Though, though that was surely a, a f- part of the fulfillment of this promise. But we do still have enemies, we do still have enemies. And the New Testament reframes uh, this, not, not, not as our enemies, not as flesh and blood, but as powerful forces in the heavenly places. The battle moves from the physical to the spiritual. Right, we, this is why it says we have spiritual authority to destroy strongholds. This salvation that we've been forgiven our sins and now in Christ have authority over over sin, Satan, and death. The great enemies of our soul have no power over us because we are forgiven. These things go together. Colossians 2 describes this dynamic, I think, very clearly. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, that's God, made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. All right, so the Bible would say we still do have enemies. They're spiritual enemies. Right, they're powerful. The Satan is, a, is what, a, a lion, all right, a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. We do have enemies of our soul. And salvation is from them, of course, yes. We disarm those rulers and authorities. They have no power over us. Um, but, but salvation is also, it's, it's, it's protection, it's deliverance from those external enemies. It's also deliverance from the evil in our own heart. Right? It's, it's the forgiveness of sins. And that's often the hardest, to, the hardest to recognize, isn't it? We would all like, uh, we would all, like every, all of the external situations, everyone against us, all of our enemies to be taken care of. That would be nice. Uh, we, we struggle to let the interior enemies, <laughs> right, ourselves, our own hearts, our own flesh, to be taken care of. We struggle to recognize those sometimes. How is the salvation... Right? How is the salvation so comprehensive? How can God take care of our enemies and forgive our sins? And that leads us to our last point, the dawn of hope. The dawn of hope, verse 78. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace, I love that phrase. This is what salvation brings. Peace is this rich biblical word that means not just the absence of conflict, but a wholeness, a fullness, a, a everything that is broken, put back togetherness. This is the, the Hebrew word shalom that you may have heard. And peace, um, this wholeness, is how the world was created God made the world in, in harmony and in wholeness, but we learn that this was shattered by sin, by our first parents disobeying God. Adam and Eve took what was not theirs to take. Since then, um, God's good world has been reeling from the reality and the effects of sin. We see it throughout history in war, in famine, in poverty, in slavery, in, in human self-exaltation. We see, we see all this and more continues to this day despite the progress that we have made in society. Human pride, envy, jealousy, lust, greed, uh, fear, doubt, malice. It, they run wild in the world and they run, run wild in our hearts. Zechariah describes his people's condition uh, in these verses as those living in darkness in the shadow of death. This description echoes Isaiah hundreds of years before, and it just seems to be this lasting and accurate description of the human condition, don't you think? We live in darkness, evil without, evil within, blindness, malice, hatred, and we live in the shadow of death. Despite all of the advancements in medicine and in technology, Despite all the uh, elite folks who have frozen their bodies for science to someday resuscitate, we talk about grasping for hope. We have not escaped the shadow of our great enemy, death. Everyone's afraid to die, and death comes to all now or later. Our modern materialist society gives us no hope or real resources to deal with death. 
If we are cosmic accidents uh, and, and, and this material world is all there is, then, then what hope could there be? Some secular people try to say that uh, death is just a natural part of life, an easy slip into nothingness that we shouldn't fear. But I think uh, the, the psychiatrist Carl Jung is more honest when he says this. Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There's no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more, more so psychically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. Indeed, we live in darkness. We live in the shadow of death. But what does Zechariah say? Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. I wonder if that's what you think God thinks of of our world. His merciful compassion. He feels with you. That's what compassion means. He's merciful. And because of that, the dawn from on high will visit us. What's this talking about? We've already seen that Zacharias has mentioned Messiah visiting his people, God himself visiting his people. And this is what he picks up here, again, with imagery from the Old Testament. This is a dawn for those in darkness, but it's a dawn from on high. And this is, of course, referring to Jesus, God himself come in the flesh, the one who John the Baptist is being born to prepare the way for. In our darkness, light comes. To those oppressed under the shadow of death, there's a ray of hope. Impossibly, amazingly, uh, unexpectedly, because of God's merciful compassion, the light comes, right? And it comes as a vulnerable, crying baby boy. No one expected that. What then will this child become? We have the privilege of knowing the answer to that question. John will grow up to testify about Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus will grow up to say, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus, the light of the world, despite living a remarkable and loving life, was arrested and beaten and executed on the cross. The light was swallowed up in darkness and death. But death could not hold him. And he rose three days later, just as he said he would. The light of the world defeated the darkness. And so we know that death does not have the final say. And so we have hope. We have hope. And this hope is not just, not just uh, in, in some theory, not just some uh, religious hope out there that we can uh, think nice thoughts about. No, it, it should come even into our daily lives. Look at verse 80. This child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Um, Zechariah 
prophesied this. He sang this song by the Holy Spirit, this amazing prophecy of hope and comfort and strength. And then he and Elizabeth, think about this. So he, he, he said this. His mouth was open. This is amazing. Everyone was, saw it and, and was talking about this. Uh, and then, you know, that night, uh, he, he and Elizabeth went to sleep and probably had to wake up several times to feed John in the night and, uh, and to change his diaper cloths or whatever they used back then. Uh, and, and, and they were old people, right? They, these were, uh, they, they were old. This was not easy. This, this promise, this hope of, of just who John was and who he would be, their son would be, uh, it took 30 years to come to fruition. He was an adult when he made his, his public appearance in Israel. So there was this everydayness, this waiting period. And, and I noticed this about life. Both of these things are true, right? Jesus is the light of the world and diapers need changing, <laughs> Right? The, the glorious and the, the routine and the mundane. Don't let the mundane cancel out or, or, or negate the, the glorious truths and, and the hope that we have. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. And we have our ordinary, often mundane and painful lives to live as we wait in hope. That's what hope means, that we, don't, we, we are sure of what we are not experiencing, what we don't see yet. But God is working. God is working. Just like through Zechariah and Elizabeth's raising, John grew strong in spirit. It says he grew strong in spirit. This was part of the promise, part of the plan. And so, so just through your everyday the faithfulness in the mundane stuff of life. God is working, he's shaping, he's moving, he's fulfilling his promise. If you've lived long enough or you pay attention to the world at all, it's, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by the darkness as we've talked about. But, but what does this all mean? What does Advent mean? Because of what God has done, in offering salvation through his son, Jesus. No matter how dark the world or our lives get, we have a durable hope. We have an anchor for the soul. We have a rock that can't be moved. In Advent, we wait. We wait for the light, our savior to return. We, we expect him, we long for him. And, and as we wait and as we long, we choose to live in the hopeful questions. What is God up to? What's the Holy Spirit doing now? What's he calling me to? Why, why did he place us here now in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our places of work, in our cities? What's God doing? We live in this hope because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we often look to temporal things to give us hope. We look to our security, to our bank accounts, um, to our, our prospects of a pain-free life. Um, to things that we hope, or things that we hope for our children, things that we hope uh, for our, our families. 
Lord, and, and we often are disappointed. <laughs> and so if, would you please give us this anchor for the soul? Would you please give us a hope that can never be taken away from us because it is a hope in you? Jesus, thank you that you are the light of the world and that you've brought us hope forever. Lord, for those in here who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and for those who are so weighed down by sin, and for those who are so weighed down by the world and by circumstances, I pray that you would shine your light into their hearts. I pray that they would know your merciful compassion. Lord, I can't believe that you love us like you do. We love you. We hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.